Well, so I confess that when I started to see Christmas uh, around before Thanksgiving, we can turn it down a little bit, um, I was happy this year. I mean, usually it's like, oh, come on, man, give me a little more time before Christmas hits, right? But this year I was excited. It's just like, give me something that feels normal. Just give me something that feels traditional. And so I confess that this year, maybe more than ever, I'm kind of excited, but obviously, like probably most of us, we're a little bit like, well, but will it really pan out with all this restriction and stuff? But I do want to say before we get started in our Advent series that we celebrate Christmas, and let's remember that, particularly this year we need to remember that, because I do think, I suspect that many of us will be disappointed uh, about this year's Christmas and the ways in which we're not able to gather together perhaps, or whatever restrictions we face, and well, just keep in mind that we say this every year, though, that we celebrate Christmas not because it is instituted or commanded in Scripture, but because it is a cultural event that portends to be about Christ, even if sadly Christ is more often than not co-opted for other, perhaps more secular motives. It makes us nervous, quite frankly. We all know the origin of Christmas. It had nothing to do with Jesus' birthday. Uh, most scholars believe he was born somewhere in July. It was meant intentionally to replace pagan solstice celebrations uh, during the you know, third, fourth century. I still wonder, uh, maybe you do too, if for the interest of Christ, it wouldn't be better just to take Christ out of Christmas um, and to celebrate solstice in its own right. God would delight, I think, in us celebrating you know, the, the, the natural rhythms of nature and and being hopeful about the light which is to come and things like that. But that being said, it, it is a pretty significant opportunity, isn't it? To witness to the truth about Christ when there's so many myths flying around during this Christmas season. Even if the date is chosen for reasons of solstice, well, our culture is talking a lot about Jesus. And for the church to be silent would seem to be uh, complicit at the very least. And so this year is to bring better clarity to the meaning of Christ. We're going to do something we haven't done before. Maybe you haven't done it either. But, and, and, this, and in terms of just thinking about his birth and the meaning of his birth, we're going to look at ancient births fulfilled. That's our Advent theme, ancient births fulfilled. Now, did you know that there is a specific biblical genre that we call birth narratives throughout the history of redemption as recorded as in our sacred scripture. Did you know that? To be a genre, of course, there have to be distinctives about it that are repetitive, things that, that become clear, that know this is intentional, these birth narratives. And once we discern that, we just see how these birth narratives are characterized by certain characteristics that set the person apart as uniquely and supernaturally chosen by God as a great savior or deliverer figure on behalf of God's chosen people. That is to say, to follow a map that leads us to the birth of Christ, you can do that following sort of this navigational chart that God has put into the Holy Scriptures that if you were to follow these birth narratives, you would know much about what Christ and the meaning of Christ is and what Christ came to accomplish. Why? Because Christ is shown in Scripture, even by the quotations we heard today in our New Testament passage, to fulfill all the grand expectations of these great birth narratives past. So, for instance... The birth narratives that you will learn about in this Advent series will consist of Samuel, God's Savior Judge, Isaac, God's sacrificial lamb, Jacob, God's son, beloved son, and Moses, God's prophet. Today, though, perhaps the most misunderstood of all birth narratives, we will look at the birth narrative of Samson, God's deliverer. Now, how important is Samson in redemptive history? Perhaps if you have heard of Samson, 
you have an impression of him. Let me guess. Is it not the picture of an oversexed Tarzan figure in need of some serious anger management therapy? That's pretty typical. You know some of the stories, don't you? This huge, wild man of a figure with long hair who seems to always let the worst impulses get the best of him. Stories of lust. Stories of revenge. On it could go. Even some of the more conservative or evangelical uh, types of, of, of pastors and scholars will, will take this line typically reworking it so that Samson is considered a kind of anti-hero, the embodiment of all that was wrong with the people of God at that time, the embodiment of all that was wrong, but in a way where God is shown, therefore, to use even the most misfit of people to accomplish his great work of salvation. You know, we would love that narrative, wouldn't we? It, makes me feel better that I'm a misfit because I know that I am. It makes me better, feel better that, yes, God can use screwed up people to do his great works of redemption. I love that. I love it. It's just not true. Not of this text. So if you've got that image, we've got a problem. I mean, if what I just said is the accurate portrayal of Samson, doesn't it seem strange that so much space is given to this birth narrative? More space than any of the other judges. More space than almost all the other birth narratives. That's significant. A whole chapter is given just to his birth. But it begs a problem as well. I mean, you heard over and over again the passage that was read, but at the very end, it says that what? The Lord blessed him. This is the man where the Spirit of the Lord four times comes upon him and anoints him, sets him apart. This is a man that is known for his Nazaretic vow, this vow of intense holiness. On it could go. Are we comfortable letting the scripture tell us how to read this narrative? Now, unfortunately, this is not a sermon series on salmon. I mean, on Samson. I'm not hungry, I promise. And, and if it were, I'd be able to go through and dissect it. There is a sermon series in the, the uh, archives somewhere of this, of this church where I've preached on, on judges, and you can go back and get it if you want, and it would explain it. But leave it to be said that that we're not gonna read it that way. You see, we enter into a period, long time ago in the 11th century BC. This is where his life took place. It's to a time that was arguably the most raucous, violent, if not downright vile, hostile, savagely brutal, and immoral time in all of Israel's sordid history on her road to the promised land and redemption. It is a time when despite the spiritual downward spiral of God's people which led them to oppression and captivity, there was the continued presence though of God's grace for the sake of his name and his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yeah, those other birth narratives. God remaining faithful to send them deliverers. The book of Judges is the word Hebrew shofet, which is the word deliverer. Here we have the most famous and the most celebrated of all the deliverers, blessed of God, not cursed of God. Read the scripture we just read. This is the same one that enters into the Biblical Hall of Fame in chapter 11 of Hebrews. There he is, right alongside of Abraham and Moses and David and Samson. Really? An anti-hero? You see, this story 
is the story of intense sinfulness and how a man was born by supernatural means wherein he comes to a people who receive him not. Sound familiar? At every turn of the road, this man is being deceived. He's being attacked. He's being diminished by the very people he was called to save. He is drastic in his response, and it's often misunderstood. His desire to marry a particular Tennantite woman. You could read it as a sex driver. You could read it as a man determined to fulfill his vow. For it was this very woman that put him in the place where he could destroy the Philistines and save Israel. I could tell you stories like that throughout the whole thing. But now we just want to focus on the birth narrative. Particularly these characteristics that I think will tell us volumes about the meaning of Christ's birth fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for this wonderful time that we can truly remember this amazing event from heaven to earth, God incarnate in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would be retrained in our thoughts to know what does that mean, really? Look at what you did to make sure we wouldn't miss it by giving us this navigational map. Lord, help us to see what your scripture wants us to see, that we might love Jesus, that we might respond in grace and faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I'm gonna be observing several characteristics of, of this birth narrative for you as they'll point us to Christ. But before I do, I wanna get the big picture here. You see, there are these seven birth narratives in the Bible all announcing a savior figure, as I've said, sent from God. The circumstances of birth are exceptional and supernatural all. One thinks of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac. We think of Isaac and Jacob and, the, and, and Rebekah and the birth of Jacob. We think of Jacob and Rachel and Joseph, this towering figure. And here Manoah and his wife, unnamed by the way, and we have Samson. Elkanah and Hannah and the birth of Samuel and in the New Testament, the last of the Old Testament prophets is, of course, Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of their son, John the Baptist. Oh, and then, of course, there's Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. Some of the common characteristics of these birth narratives begin to stick out if you look at them all together. They always seem to be related to some form of barrenness. Or virginity which in the Old Testament particularly was often utilized as a sign of a curse indicative of the sin of the people as we'll see barrenness can become a kind of enactment prophecy we call it where God uses a circumstance as metaphor to the reality of the world barrenness there's an angelic announcement that's huge Angels just don't come and go as they free. They are sent by God in these special epoch transition moments. When, you, when, a, when an angel shows up at your birth, <laughs> you know something's just happening big time. Exceptional expectations for what the child will do. Nothing short of a salvation kind of an impact is prophesied over this child. We'll see the special work of the Spirit, not only in the birth by the Holy Spirit, but then in the consistent anointing of the Holy Spirit of this person throughout their lives. There'll be special instructions for parents and how they're to raise this child as unto the Lord consecrated. And the very people the person came to save, it seems to be a common theme, reject him. Even are shown to be an enmity. With God in other words like a navigational waypoint some of you know boating navigation you know that you you get to A to Z by virtue of plotting a course with what we call wayward points and these little points 
I consider here to be the birth narratives that if you were to just follow the chart, you would find yourself right into Christ. It's as the scriptures say in the New Testament, how over and over again, if you want to find Jesus, we found him of whom Moses in the law, and by the way, the Torah, the law consists even of judges here. Moses in the law, the prophets, and even the Psalms, these means of God revealing his redemptive plan over and over and over in the old covenant are part of a navigational chart. If you learn to read it with the eyes of faith on Christ, you'll see it. You think of the Emmaus Road when they had appointed this, you know, this day where, where these strangers were discerning who this person was. And, of course, they just, he meets Christ and then he says, how? He revealed himself using the law and the prophets. That's what we're doing today. Think about what does that mean to your life that God would do that? We're going to apply it or take home each of these points at the end of the sermon. But just be thinking about that. But now let's look at these characteristics, particularly five here. Characteristics that are common to most all birth narratives that we see here in Samson's. Again, there's this angelic pronouncement, this initiated declaration by God. God, you see, is directly involved in what's happening here in Judges. We see it in chapter 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. There it is. We'll get to that in a minute. And had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared, quote, end quote. Sound familiar? And said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. It's the exact Hebrew phrase used with Moses at the burning bush, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, quote, end quote. It's the same phrase used in Luke chapter 1, verse 11 to Zacharias' announcement for Christ, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord. Same phrase used in Matthew to Joseph, and the angel of the Lord appeared, chapter 1, verse 20. And to the mother, Mary, Gabriel. And he came, this angel, and he said to her, greetings, favored one. What do we learn about Christ in a long tradition of God intervening as indicated by these angelic proclamations or announcements? Clearly, it sets up a great expectation. Here in the judges, all of the birth narratives, this is the only one of four birth narratives that explicitly states this great expectation for a phenomenal deliverance or salvation to come through this person. The angel says, and he shall save Israel. Sound familiar? Again, there are not many births that are prophecies, only four, where it is said that an amazing thing a, this child will accomplish. It happened in Abraham and Sarah with respect to Isaac. Through him, all the nations will be blessed. Samson and then Elizabeth and Zechariah, who would be great in the sight of the Lord, preparing the way of the Lord, the Messiah. Of course, Joseph and Mary, don't be afraid because he will, quote, save his people from their sins, end quote. You could almost take it right out of Samson's narrative. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Great expectations. Hold on to that. Secondly, we see a desperate context, often related to barrenness, as I've said, such as to be metaphorical to the problem of sin and decay. Notice again how it said, how it was that his wife was barren and had no children, and then repeats it again in the next verse, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive. This is language that we've heard before. 
We heard it in Genesis 11, how Sarah was barren and had no children. The exact same Hebrew phrase. Accidental? Come on, nothing in Holy Scripture is accidental. Jacob and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer. John the Baptist and Elizabeth, on it goes to Mary, who was found to be a virgin without child. Now, in this case, of course, barrenness and virginity is different. Barrenness speaks to those who have tried but can't have a child or has not been successful. And here we just have a person who's not even been married yet to have a child. But it sets us up. Even in her own confession, if you remember, her song she saw herself in, in solidarity with a people who were being humbled. This physical barrenness used as a metaphor to the spiritual barrenness. It's not that being barren was a sin. Don't misunderstand that. But as a woman chosen to enact in her womb the very spiritual condition of her people, her children had come to save is it, if, is it if to say that, that Israel is no longer fruit-bearing? Israel is dead in her trespasses. Now, this is clearly supported by the book of Judges and the way in which Judges sets its narratives up. There are many Judges in this time, or what we call Judges. Really, it would be better to use the word that Judges is literally the word show fate, which means deliverer. And so there were many deliverers, but only seven are specified in the book of Judges. And every single one of those episodes, even as it's introduced in the first chapters, it repeats the pattern. And if some of you were here back when, when we preached it, you know where I'm going here, but we call it the S cycle. It always begins, every one of those segments begins with these words, and again, and again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were barren. They were idolatrous. They were raucous. They were stiff-necked. They were doing what is right in their own eyes. They did this particularly in the light of, of that day by forming alliances with nation-states rather than forming an alliance with God forming an alliance with those nations and then being syncretized to their religious deities, for every nation state had a deity at its time. And, and as they syncretized to the life of the world, they did evil rather than being syncretized, if you will, to God as their ultimate king. Every story begins this way, no exception here. They form this alliance with a nation state and their patron gods the same exact result ends up happening. God delivers them over to their idols, of course, delivering them over to the Philistines in this case, and they go into servitude from sin, S, to servitude, S. Delivered over, sold into the hands of their, who would become their very enemies in bondage. This pattern keeps going. It happened every time. Now, I want you to listen to this. Sin. All seven of the judges are started that way. Servitude, all seven of the judges are continued that way. Same exact response, thirdly. Supplication, all seven of the judges, they supplicate. Because that's a word. <laughs> ah, wait, though. They supplicated in chapter chapter 3 with uh, uh, for Othniel and was delivered. They did so for Deborah and she delivered them. Gideon and he delivered them crying out to the Lord help us Lord. Repenting of their tearing their sackcloth and begging God to save them. They did the same thing for Jephthah and now we come to Samson. There is no supplication. That's intentional. The people were that dead. They didn't even know they needed to be saved in their misery. 
There was no cry out for help. Not one of them cries out to the Lord for deliverance in our passage that leads to, to Samson. This is dramatic. God has raised up Samson to a people who don't even know or want to be saved. They are so lost in their sin. Sound familiar? Samson is being sent to a people who will not even know of their need. Samson's met with his life and ministry with deception and resistance, which is going to explain a lot of his behaviors, if you remember that, and how he overcomes that deception, often with deception. It's interesting. When he is about to save them, this happens in chapter 15. On the night before, it sounds kind of familiar, the people all turn against him. The man is coming to save them, and he's turning against them. Does that sound familiar? I mean, you could just write in big red letters across chapter 15, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. For the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on it. Lehi and the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? They said, we have come up to bind Saint Samson, to do him as he did to us. You see the people are being killed and slaughtered by the Philistines, And what are they going to do? They're going to blame Samson. Sound familiar? Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Atarn and said to Samson, do you know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so have I done to them. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Does that sound familiar? God, it breaks your heart. God's saving his people. And his people forsake him. A people who received him not. The true light which enlightens everyone has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Hold on to that. Would you expect anything different today? Thirdly, consecrated to God as a Nazarite. Now, this might confuse a lot of you. There in verse 4 through 5, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Now this Nazaritic vow was very important. It's a vow of consecrated to God in holiness. In the Hebrew Bible, the term Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word netzir, which means consecrated or separated out from the world as holy unto the Lord. The revival required the man all sorts and the women to do all sorts of ceremonial things which were part of the, the liturgy of worship that would celebrate or, or that would consecrate the child unto God. And you hear some of that here in terms of the wine and, and the vinegar and the grapes and the raisins and all these other things that you're to, to exclude in your life and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's interesting. This word, Nazarite, is both ideal, pure, and solidarity with the sinner. In other words, it's interesting that in, the, in, in this idea of the Nazaritic vow, that the language is literally the same. It's derived even from this idea of holiness. A holiness which was required in order to what? To sanctify the people you came to save. That's key. This is one without sin, in so many words. This is one who is unblemished by the world, who has separated himself from the world, even as he's come into the world to save a world that could not save itself. Boy, does that sound familiar. And even in Christ's story, in Luke chapter 2, how they brought him to the temple, as it was written, that he might be consecrated to God. This holiness of Christ, for their sake I consecrate myself, the Lord said later, that they also may be sanctified by me. He is here representing humanity 
in a substitutionary manner that he might be set apart as, as one who is able to deal with their sin. Fourthly, notice in this passage the focus of the Holy Spirit. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. You see this idea of the Spirit of the Lord came to Samson. It's never used except as God's positive anointing. You can't see that in the Bible and say, oh, then what he's doing is an anti-hero event. I mean, how could we have gotten to that narrative? He is set apart by the Holy Spirit to do the Lord's work. It's done four times, four times the emphasis of the Holy Spirit upon Samson. God's positive anointing. It's as if the Spirit of God is without measure on this man. Sound familiar? Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Just a few verses later, the angel of the Lord appears to them. And of course there he says, and as for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And of course we think of the life of Christ now the very first event that took place after his baptism was the anointing of Christ by the Holy Spirit as a dove descended upon him out of heaven given the power the power not only to baptize with water but what to baptize with the Spirit of God that kind of spirit that would be promised to Moses one after him a great prophet who would write the law on their heart by the Spirit. I love this phrase that Elizabeth shares with Mary about the Spirit. For about the Spirit and about this power that God is going to bring upon this one Jesus Christ after the type, you could say, of Samson. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also consecrated his son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing, nothing will be impossible for God. If Samson is any story at all in the history of redemptive history, it's nothing was impossible in the face of all kinds of opposition. He saved Israel from the ruthlessness of the Philistines, a type of a greater spiritual salvation to come. For in spite of our sin and barrenness, even hostility towards God and his deliverer, here God is sending a deliverer anointed of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the passage ends as our passage in Matthew ends with the naming of this prodigy with capital letters, son. They named him Shamshun is the Hebrew way of saying it, Shamshun. The woman bore a, child, a son and called his name Shamshun. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. It's interesting, this metaphor. Some would describe Shamshun as meaning a rising star. Since the word to save though, is taken from the sun. In other words, if I'm going to do a little technical work with you here, you, it's derived from the word shemesh, from an unused word sun, or battlement, or protectorate. And then shemesh, which leads then to shamshun, the protector, the deliverer. That's the, sermon, the title of our sermon, Samson, the Deliverer. I mean, whatever else we read of Samson, we need to see him as this divine, consecrated Savior of God, ultimate in league with all the other types that will culminate and find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. We need to be careful to not impose our subjective 
pietistic expectations into a world that we don't live in. Yes, it's going to be raucous, this story. Yes, there's going to be all manners of dark stuff happening. That's the point. And yes, the story we read, and very quickly we would impose our little subjective pietism into the story and make judgments about all that Samson's doing in a way that doesn't understand its context, doesn't understand the purpose of it, and its greater redemptive history. This one is a Messiah-like figure. This one is like one who would save the world really and fully. And so with that being said, I'd like to just end with a couple of take-homes. I don't, I don't get to develop it quickly because I had a lot here to give you, but, but I want you to go home and just reflect. What does Christmas really mean? Well, Christmas, if not a solstice event, which is a great event in its own right, I should say, but what would it mean if we do want to reflect on Christ and his meaning this Advent season? Well, just stop and think about what we heard. <laughs> it just warms your heart to think of the intentionality of God, doesn't it? I mean, God was writing history as a navigational chart. I mean, and it is history, but it's not about history. It's about Christ, all of it, and God's salvation in the gospel. God's commitment to you and to your friends and to your neighbor to make sure that you don't miss it is so evident by this. Like a navigational waypoint, the burden areas, as I said, lead us to Christ, illustrating what we call the clarity or the perspicuity of God's revelation in Christ. Redemptive history is literally the history of a chart being constructed. Why is that important? Because there's many so-called saviors, aren't there, in the world. Many other religions, many other savior-type figures. We are so tempted by these savior figures. We just came out of the season where we just all debated on who will be our savior king called the president of the United States. We look to politics, we look to economics, we look to the academy, we look here, we look there. We're, we're searching for that which is gonna give us life, that which is gonna save us from all the curses of this world. And we are so blinded in our syncretism to the world that often, like these Judah people, we don't even know that for the Philistines our enemy. We pray, God, increase my Philistine currency. God, increase my Philistine prestige. God, increase my Philistine, and we could go on and on and on. Power. Yes, we're called to live in the world. This isn't some fundamentalistic fortress mentality coming out here. Samson went into that world. Jesus went into that world. We go into that world, but oh, must we go into it carefully that we don't become like those who would lose our way in our barrenness and realize that, that only Jesus can make my family and my children and my history sanctified and blessed, really blessed. And that's going to change the way we work the world. We'll work it with just a little less of an edge on us. For the world and its successes are just not quite so important to us anymore. Because of Jesus, I don't put so much worth on my money, my prestige, my education from this world. I don't. I sound hypocritical, don't I? Well, I would in a Philistine enamored world. That's what was happening here. God's commitment to this navigational clarity 
trying to save us from our lostness, that we might be clear. When somebody asks me, you know, how do you know that Jesus is the, the, the right one? There are a lot of religions, a lot of savior kind of figures and savior ideologies. And it's this kind of a sermon that I would point to. I'd say, well, you know, but could it, either this is all myth or it's true. It's true historical stuff. And they all get you to Christ. That's amazing. I mean, you think to yourself, oh, God, could he really do that? Yeah, he's God. He could write history thousands of years, hundreds of years before Jesus, knowing full well that he's writing the history in order to get you and all of humanity to God in Christ Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Really? The Moses and the law and the prophets, over and over in the New Testament, they are quoted as those navigational waypoints that would lead you to Christ so that you could be certain it's worth your sacrifice in this world. It's worth that turning your eye against Philistine. And so we learn the Emmaus Road from the birth narratives past. Think about this angelic pronouncement that we heard about. Has Christmas, and particularly has Christ, because again, I'm not so bent on saving Christmas, but I am bent on saving Christ, who is getting co-opted by Christmas. As if Christ endorses the very Philistine institutions that are going to put us in servitude. It can be really wicked this Christmas season if we're not careful. Jesus hovering over Madison Avenue. You know the scene I'm looking at right now, if you're, if you're familiar. This angelic pronouncement is meant to and tell you, do you have the appropriate great expectations for Jesus? I mean, has it all become so familiar, this whole Jesus thing? What are your expectations for the Christian life? What are your expectations really for Jesus? Do you really think Jesus is the answer? Is Christ really the deliverer foreshadowed and lesser delivers redemptive history past? For nothing, we are told, is impossible with Jesus. Nothing. We need to believe that. Sometimes it may take some time to root out the sin, but Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit, can baptize us with that spirit. We can be born again, and we mean that morally and spiritually. We believe in the supernatural. Do you believe that anymore? Marriage that is now suffering? A child that is wayward? I can't promise you anything because it's all by God's divine decree. But I can promise you that Jesus is able. It's possible. Everything redemptive and holy and good, according to God's own measure, is possible with Jesus. I have said this before. I have not seen very many momentary miracles they would tend to give attention to the moment, which is why I don't think we get them or should even expect them. But I see in the face of you and this congregation and many others, I think of my ministry in Athens, I think of my ministry in the inner city in the hill and in, in, in uh, Atlanta, and I see, I see miracles, people's lives. I see it in my own life. I was thinking about it this week. We watched the, the Hillbilly Elegy, and I was looking at the influence of, and I just, it got me back. I mean, I didn't come from that environment, but I came from an environment that was pretty, you know, had some stuff. And, and I just was reflecting, and it was moved, it moved me to think of, man, you know, I, I mean, as much as you probably don't think so, if you knew who I was, you would say I'm kind of a miracle. And I think you are too, those who walk with Christ. It's a miracle 
Some of you especially, it's a miracle. But all of you, if you're Christians, it's a miracle who you are right now. That you would even take time to be here right now. It's a miracle. Nothing's impossible with God. But to get it, we must recognize our barrenness. If you're out there today, wherever you are, and you're listening to this, well, how do I get it? How do I break into that miracle? Confess. Just be that barren person. Understand your spiritual barrenness and your lostness and your deadness. The scripture teaches that we are dead in our trespasses. That means we can't save ourselves. We can't even will to save ourselves. But if you're right now thinking, God, I want it. Well, good news, that's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You wouldn't have it. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like. Starts with your will. And God in Christ is wanting to save you. And so you confess. And you believe in the unlimited grace of the salvation. Do you really believe in that unlimited grace? That's the grace that came to the Judaites who didn't even want Samson to come. Grace upon grace. Paul says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Why? Because God's grace is not predicated upon us. It's for his mere good pleasure. Mere, like only, like there's nothing else to explain it. It's just in him to do it and to want to do it. Do you believe in that kind of grace after the story of Samson? Israel was saved while they bound him and crucified him. Israel was saved by him. Do you know this about yourself? Do you want the anointing of the Holy Spirit? If you're not a believer and if you haven't joined a church, be baptized. Peter said, what must I, they said to him, what must I do to be saved? And he says, Well, repent, as in confess, and be baptized. You say, oh, come on, Preston, you're getting into rituals and high churchism. No, 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 there's something about this. This supernatural rebirth that's mediated through baptism. It's not like it's an event. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen necessarily and all that. But but ordinarily, it's the way in which God brings you into the life of his church, wherein you will become spirit-filled. The church and the flesh of Christ that's in the church is the way in which that happens. And the mystery of that union with Christ and the church by what? The Holy Spirit. These anointing, pray for the anointing. Pray that God would give you new birth. And then they called him Jesus. Really. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The Bible tells you that. Don't expect that to be written about in the paper over there. It's going to sound kind of foolish. But to those who are being saved, it is the salvation of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus is the gospel. And so receive him and recommit your life to him this Christmas season. Amen. Shemshan of God is with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The image of Christ on the night in which he was betrayed, taking the bread and breaking it and giving thanks and giving it to his people, saying, take, eat. This is my body, my life given to you. Eat ye all of it. And taking the cup and saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink ye all of it. You see, for as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember Shamshan. 
Savior. This very one who came into the world, announced by the angels, anointed by the Spirit, came into a world that crucified him and bound him up and mocked him. It's the irony of God's grace for you and me. For we come to this table today not boasting of our faith and our holiness. We come remembering our sin with some degree of sadness that we were those who were in enmity with our Savior. Romans tells us that, that even while we were enemies, enemies, God sent his son. That's the story of Shamshan. That's the story of this table. He came to save us. And it's by free grace. All you want at this table is to examine Christ. To see in him that he is the destination of all those waypoints of navigation charting that God did for you to get you here. And to receive him and to recommit yourself to him and to rest in him. For this table is the ironic salvation of God in Christ fulfilled. Wherein by grace you are saved, not of yourself, but it's the free gift of God that no one can boast. And so let us now reflect on this table and bring our lives to him fully, praying and thinking about ways we can recommit even our lives to him. Reorient our lives with respect to our Philistines, those we came to witness to, but not those we came to worship or to rely upon. Let's reflect on that now as we give our gifts and our prayers. You may give your prayers and the cards there and Put them in the basket as you leave. Or you can write them into the uh, website if you go there now by your phones.